Well, I'm not great uh, at what we typically define as art. Uh, I cannot uh, draw or sculpt and my handwriting is atrocious. Uh, so that kind of art, while I appreciate it, uh, I cannot do it. And so therefore, uh, most of what I had to learn in art or art history class has long since come and gone from my feeble brain. Uh, however, I do like words a lot and particularly when words get used to create images. And so one of the things that stuck with me from long ago um, was a quote by a guy named Michelangelo, not not the turtle, if you were curious. Uh, Michelangelo was a sculptor and one of his quotes said, uh, when he was talking about kind of his creative process and how he did his sculpting. I think he did like the David and uh, Sistine. It was, anyway, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Now, I don't know specifically what angel or what sculpture he's talking about here, but I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Now, the sculpture I can appreciate, but that quote uh, I love. There's this idea, right, um, that uh, he could see a form or a figure trapped inside of a block of raw marble. And his job was not so much to create something out of the marble as it was to liberate, discover, uncover the thing that already existed deep down within the marble. And I wonder if, like, that's not actually a really great way of thinking about what we mean when we say discipleship, like what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what uh, what this journey that we're on together, this spiritual journey that we're on together is like. Uh, around here, when we talk about discipleship, we define it this way. Discipleship is the process by which, uh, or the process of becoming, who we are created and called to be. Who we are created and called to be. It's almost like God made us just the way God wanted us, but that life, the state of being that we call human sort of has gotten us trapped in sorts of all other types of identities and stuff and junk that sort of builds up as we go along so that uh, we cannot live fully into who we are called to be or what we are called to do without letting the grace of God, the love of God sort of chip away at the raw form of all that stuff that exists around us and to set us free to be the beloved children uh, that we were created to be. There's plenty of biblical references that echo this idea, right? So uh, a fire that purifies or a, a fork that separates the wheat from the chaff. I mean, there's, there's plenty we could turn to. Uh, but I, I love this idea that we have this God-given identity, but that everyone else, everything else in the world is vying and lying to us just to try and tell us who we really are, to redefine us. Tell us what we're supposed to be. Uh, last week, we talked about a barrier that we have to recognizing that we are beloved children of God. Uh, we talked about shame. And I think that there's a lot of connection between uh, sort of that conversation last week around shame and this week's conversation about another barrier, sort of our identity, how we understand who we are. Um, but last week, I had several people uh, say afterwards, if you, if you didn't worship with us last week, I'd encourage you to go back and, uh, and check it out. Um, several people basically said something to the effect of, uh, I, because of shame, I've spent so much time uh, pretending or trying to be someone else that I don't even know who the real me is. Uh, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh man, that's really meaningful. And then like the second and the third and the fourth, I thought, huh, there, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we're not all alone in this journey that we call shame. Everybody, everybody wants a piece of us, a chance to define us. And all that God really wants for us is to remember that we were pretty good made just the way we are. 
and that God's love for us has the power to liberate us from every other force lying to us and vying for our primary identity. And note there that I said primary identity, because I think we all carry this sort of complex bond of different identities around wherever we go. I mean, I'm a parent, right? It's, that's an identity that I have. I love it. I don't think that that's contrary to the will or way of God. Um, but I would just say that I am uh, a child of God who is a parent, not a parent who is a child of God, right? Um, the child of God piece would be my primary identity. There's a, a theologian that writes a lot around this sort of stuff. His name is Henry Now, and I'm really thankful for Shelby Meehan, who brought a lot of this uh, kind of to the fore for me and uh, and shared some stuff uh, that I've I found really meaningful and helpful. Um, Nowen uh, was a Catholic priest, died back in the 90s. He's probably most well-known for his work and his time living in the L'Arche community, which is an intentional community of uh, folks with and without intellectual disabilities who uh, live and work and share life uh, together in community. Um, and he was a really prolific writer, most often around theologies having to do with uh, our spiritual lives and journeys. And in a book that he wrote on the prodigal son, which is a parable that Jesus tells in the Bible, he wrote that there are three lies that the son, the one we call the prodigal son in the story, uh, bought into. And he says that these three lies of identity are the same ones that we continue to wrestle with uh, today. Um, and so uh, these are the things, the lies in a sense, that kind of trap us in that block of marble. Uh, the first, he says, is I am what I have. I'm identified, my identity is wrapped up in I am what I have. The second one says, I am what I do. And the third one says, I am what other people say or think about me. Now, let's just uh, sit with those three for a second. We'll hold them up there on the screen for you. I'm curious uh, which of these you think you might wrestle with more often. Or, I mean, hypothetically, I could wrestle with two or three of them at the same time. Uh, any of us could wrestle with two or three of them at the same, at the same time. Which of those do you think uh, is maybe more of a pitfall for you? Which lie do you tend to buy into uh, most regularly? Let's look at them each in turn for just a, a quick sec. Um, I am what I have. I am what I have. Uh, this is the dangerous work of locating our identity in the things that we can accumulate. Um, and I can't do this one without like Bob Barker's voice from The Price is Right <laughs> at the back of my mind, you know. Um, I am good if I have a brand new car. Like the things that we have tell us who we are, tell us if we're good. But I think there's also a lot of sneakier parts and pieces than just materialistic sort of identities, right? Um, and I think it has to do with like comparison or what we feel like we do or don't have. So when someone else has something that I cannot have, and frankly, I probably don't have because I don't really want it or need it. But if, if someone else has something that I cannot have, even if I don't want it, I feel lack, right? And when we feel lack, lack makes us feel insufficient. This is the lie that we tell ourselves, the lie that works in us. And so then we have to find a way to fill that insufficiency with something that somebody else cannot have, right? So there's this, this sneaky idea of comparison that I think exists in this one. Uh, the second one, I am what I do. Uh, this one is sort of most obviously when we find our identity in our professions or whatever it is we do for the bulk of our lives or for our living. Uh, and we tend to pin this one on workaholics and probably rightly so. Um, but I can remember during, uh, in 2007, 
uh, there was a huge recession. It really hit hard in our area. Um, it was my first year working as a like a full time pastor. I was just a wee pastor at the time, and um, I can remember like walking into a room full of folks who had just been laid off, and we were just going to have some conversation together. And I anticipated what they were going to talk about was how they were terrified about not having enough money, because uh, that's the thing that would have terrified me. Um, and what I what I heard was uh, over and over again, I heard him say like, "I just don't even know who I am anymore." If I'm not doing this job, if I'm not in this role, if I'm not a provider for my family, then who am I? It was like much, much more of an identity question that they were, uh, that they were asking. I think this, uh, again, there's like a sneakier other part and piece of this that we could probably tease out more if we wanted to, um, uh, that we might like consider, uh, when someone finds their identity and actually just giving themselves away. Uh, so I see this often, um, parents giving themselves away for children, spouses giving themselves away for the other. And I'm not talking about like the healthy version. Uh, I'm talking about like we find our, our full identity in what we do, like how we give ourselves away until there's nothing left when we serving our, serving our parents, uh, even as children or folks that live in uh, work in service industries. We find our identity in being for another so much that we lose our God-given identity, uh, our identity of uh, the beloved child of God uh, in the process. And then finally, I am what other people say or think about me. Uh, and this is the one that we kind of hit on last week. I think when we talked about shame, uh, this is when we show up as someone that we think others want for us to be, we seek validation and approval from, uh, from them. And so in order to do that, we kind of construct who we are, like we create an identity for ourselves. And then the constant pursuit of affirmation, uh, leads us like always to kind of live as a fake person or not a fake person. That sounds so demeaning, but like, um, not as our whole or full or honest or true or real self, whatever that means, uh, at the expense of uh, at the expense of pretending to be somebody else for somebody else. Again, I'm curious which of these you feel like uh, you find yourself most most located in most often. Now, here's here's the thing: uh, deep down uh, inside all of the stuff that gets built up around us, uh, all the other parts and pieces of us, all the identities that the world wants to put on us as they vie for, uh, for the right to tell us who we are, um, underneath all those lies and the junk that comes with them, the stuff that covers us up, uh, there is a true identity that we have a primary identity that we have as a beloved child of God. And whenever I think about this, I come back to the words that God spoke over Jesus at Jesus's baptism. Um, we'll use the ones from, from Mark today in particular. Uh, we're in Mark chapter one, verse nine. Jesus has not done anything yet. Like he literally just showed up on the scene. <laughs> like uh, two beats of John the Baptist. And then Jesus shows up uh, to be baptized by John. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, where he'd been uh, growing up and was baptized by John, his cousin. We'll talk about him at Christmas in just a little bit in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Here we go. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Now there's so many ways in which these words are rooted in just Old Testament goodness from the very beginning, and uh, maybe on another day we can unpack the fullness of those. But uh, in short, here before we see Jesus doing anything in ministry, I mean before his ministry even starts, we're just at the beginning of chapter one. We hear that Jesus belongs to God because God is parent. That is God's identity, right? God is parent to us. Therefore, Jesus has an identity as a child of God. 
and not just any child of God, but a beloved child of God with whom God is well pleased. Right? We hear these words spoken over Jesus, and then and only then does he get sent out to start his ministry and do things that might be pleasing to God. I mean, he hasn't done anything to warrant being pleased by God. This is why I love it when we baptize children and we say that all of this, uh, the whole sacrament of baptism that we take time to explain, all of this is God's gift offered to us without price, right? There's nothing that we do to earn it or to deserve it. Um, it is just how unconditional love functions. And that's God's MO, right? That's how God works. That's how God operates. God's gift of baptism, just like to Jesus, to us, is a reminder of who and whose we are. It's a reminder of this moment and a reflection of God's ethic. So I want to invite us to hear these words said about ourselves this morning, just for a second, uh, wherever you find yourself. Uh, so if you'll just repeat after me, if you're in a crowded room, maybe just mumble so you don't seem too weird. Uh, just repeat after me for a second. Just do it. I know you don't want to. You in the back. I see you back there. Uh, I state your name. I state your name. Am a child of God. Am a child of God with whom God is well pleased. With whom God is well pleased. If that's true, if that's true, if those words are true, if that's God's MO, if that's God's orientation towards us, uh, then what does it look like for us to kind of fight through the lies that get told to us? I'd like to offer sort of some countervailing truths, right, from Scripture, uh, some antidotes, if you will, to the lies uh, that we just walked through. Uh, and I, I had like a big old list of antidotes, but I whittled them down to match the three. So here we go. Uh, here's the first one I think I want to mention. Returning. Returning is an antidote um, to forgetting who and whose we are. In particular, I think that this is uh, an antidote to the idea that we are what we do. Jesus was often tested, often broken, and every time we see Jesus spent because of what Jesus is doing, we see Jesus return. He returns to the Father. He goes to pray alone on the mountain. He goes to take a nap on the boat. He has an encounter with God. God comes to him. Jesus returns to God to remember whose he was so that he could remember who he was. I'm curious how you regularly return to God. What does it look like for you to return to God? Uh, I think of like, I got the image of like a swing in my head. You know, the swing goes out to do a bunch of work, but it also always has to like whoo, return to like rebuild that potential energy so that it can then be sent out, uh, be sent out again. I, I think maybe a breath prayer would be a good thing for you to consider here. If, uh, if this is what you are struggling with today, a breath prayer is just an in and an out prayer. Um, so uh, you can breathe in. I am a beloved child of God with whom God is well pleased. I am a beloved child of God with whom God is well pleased. But I would invite you to consider returning, returning to the one who made you. Uh, number two, uh, breaking. Breaking is like being broken is an antidote to this idea that I am uh, who, what other people say or think about me. Uh, nobody likes to be seen as weak. Uh, nobody likes to hear hard things. None of us want to hurt. In fact, we probably organize most of our life to minimize discomfort emotionally or physically, right? Confession is hard. Deeply listening to another is hard. Sitting with somebody else in their pain and then like not trying to fix it and letting it affect you is hard. Acknowledging our own brokenness, our faults or failures out loud or quietly is antithetical to our desire for comfort and ease. But Jesus says it's the only pathway to growth right? Tink, tink, tink. Like 
chipping off the other parts and pieces of us that are not our true identity. Chiseling is hard work. It breaks away the stone like it is, uh, it is raw, vicious work, right? Um, the only way that a Christ-formed life can come is through brokenness. So I'm curious what confession looks like in your life. I'm curious who you could sit with in the ash heap of grief. I'm curious where you might need to acknowledge your complicity in somebody else's uh, pain and to recognize that that is an antidote uh, to the lies that we're told. And then finally, uh, giving, right? Giving is an antidote to, um, to I am what I have. And I, and I want to say, uh, I want to say giving with gratitude. I recently heard someone say that gratitude makes what we have enough. Gratitude makes what we have enough. Uh, and I don't know that that's always true, but I love, I love the fact that it might be. Um, if Jesus is right, then the truest path to wholeness is self-offering. And so I'm going to say that giving with gratitude allows us to be content with what we have because of our gratitude. Um, and if we are content with what we have, then we don't need more. And that means there's not a feeling of scarcity, which means that we are then set free to give more of ourselves away. The more we give away, the more we will actually have. Again, this is a truth that we hear Jesus turn to pretty regularly when he says those who lose their lives will find it. So those are the three antidotes I'd like to offer you uh, today. I, I just also want to say one more thing because I think I, I, I can't, I didn't know where else to fit it in what we've talked about so far, but um, I, I've become like real recently kind of concerned with the the general prog progression towards individualism that we've been on since the Enlightenment. So this is like a new problem that we just stumbled upon. It's, uh, but it feels uh, like the individualism is accelerating and that that's causing a lot of uh, hurt and pain and harm and injustice in our world. Um, it's probably fully another sermon for another day, so I won't get off too much uh, on it today. Um, but uh, the more I just kind of sat with the things that I've just shared, um, I was just thinking about even how individualistic some of that sounds, right? Like my true identity, my true self, I am a beloved child of God. So part of me just on the, on the way out here wants to encourage us maybe to think about how rather than saying I'm a, I'm a child of God, which is true, and you should say a beloved child of God, you are, um, what it would look like for us to say I am a part of the beloved family of God, right? Uh, that God's love exists for us, not just individually, but it's a communal offering of love. The family of God uh, is actually God's greatest gift to us because they're the ones that help uh, chip and uncover, chisel out who we are. Uh, that's not often something we can do on our own, particularly when we're trapped in a block of marble. We need those around us uh, to remind us to like tink, 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 to like chip away at those things for us. Um, yeah, we just, we need, we need each other. I think uh, finding each other is often a way that we find uh, find God again. We remember uh, whose we are and therefore therefore who we are. Well, uh, I'm going to offer all this to you. I know it's a lot, um, but I wanted to give you something to chew on and to think about this week as we wrestle with what it means uh, to be a beloved child of God and the things that tend to get in the way of it. Uh, so I would invite you to, to do the work of returning or uh, breaking or giving with gratitude uh, this week as we attempt to, uh, to offer antidote to the lies uh, that everybody else wants to tell us. Uh, blessings on you in that work. Um, I'd love a chance uh, to pray with you before you, you get out of here today um, and just to, uh, to, begin, to begin some of this together. So let's pray. Uh, Almighty God, we return. We return to you. 
I am a beloved child of God with whom God is well pleased. What a great gift these words are to us. And what a great gift it is that we can return to you to remember whose we are and therefore who we are, particularly uh, in moments and seasons and times when, when who we are feels really, really, really up for grabs uh, and everybody else is trying to tell us um, who we are. Can we just return to you uh, and hear you say those words over, over us, just the words you said over Jesus, to remember that we're made in your image, uh, that we're loved unconditionally, and that that's not a mushy thing, it's not a hollow thing, uh, it's actually a real and a hard thing uh, to do. And so chip and chisel us uh, into the people uh, that you have created and are calling us to be. Uh, may your grace be at work in our lives, winnowing and purifying and chiseling and making new. In the name of the one who reminds us to return, in the name of the one who offered himself broken for our wholeness, in the name of the one who gave all that he had and all that he was with gratitude. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's been great to worship with you together during this time. Uh, we'd love to invite you to come and join us for worship in person or online, live on Sunday mornings or throughout the week. You can find more information about our worship times or worship with us online at fvumc.org. And while you're there, uh, you can find plenty of ways to connect with us, uh, whether that's uh, connecting in sort of an opportunity for community around here or serving the greater Fuquay community around us. Uh, so we'd love to invite you to join us for those. Uh, if this is a resource that provides you spiritual sustenance and you'd like to partner with us in making it possible for everyone else, while you're there, at the top right-hand corner, there's a button that says Give, or you can go to fvumc.org slash give and make a gift there that makes the mission and ministry of this place possible. We're so thankful for everyone who partners with us uh, to do just that. Listen, it's been great. It's been great to be together with you uh, in this moment, and we look forward to worshiping again with you real soon. We'll see you then.